<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win this. Oh picture. god, I know. Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we either feature a new release and delve into our weekend entertainment, focus in on a performer's career, or buy an extra large popcorn and do a double feature. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And as we're into November now, the films are less summer blockbuster and more autumn art house, less bare and more layered. Time and time again in this podcast, we discuss films that challenge us, that hold a mirror up to ourselves and cause us to reflect. Films that engage with their audience in an intellectual manner. Time and time again, there are certain themes that come to the forefront of these discussions. Each episode, we open with a description of our featured film, which ends with, This film asks a question. I think there are all kinds of reasons to love movies, whether it's the excitement of your imagination being sparked from seeing a galaxy far, far away, or it's the adrenaline rush accompanying your quickened heart rate as a killer in a mask stalks their prey. Maybe you love movies that make you laugh, or that just provide a couple hours of pure, easy escapism from the stresses of your life. There's so many reasons to love movies. For us, we started this podcast because we love when movies make us think. We love movies that ask questions of the audience. This episode's film does that. It's Tar, written and directed by Todd Field and starring Kate Blanchett as Lydia Tar, a woman who is regarded as one of the most important and successful conductors and composers in the world. In this film, she is working on a series of live recordings with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, where she has been named the first ever female musical director. She has a home in Berlin with her wife, Sharon, played by Nina Haas, and their daughter, Petra. But as Tara begins rehearsals for the recording of the final piece of music, Gustav Mahler's Fifth Symphony, things start to unravel as accusations of her own problematic and perhaps criminal behavior is brought to light. The question of can you or even should you separate the art from the artist is one people have been asking since art began. It's a question that we may feel like we're growing ever closer to having a sort of societally agreed upon answer for, but it's still up for debate. The question of what lines can someone cross in their pursuit of their greatness and the question of what happens to that person once they achieve greatness. These are all examples of those types of questions that we love when movies ask of us that get us thinking that inspired us to create this podcast. Tara asks those questions and more. First mm. impression, Helen. That was so nice. Mm-hmm. Oh. That <laughs> was like, <laughs> and it's true. It is why we started this podcast. She's tearing yeah. up. No, I'm not. <laughs> um, I know it is. But yeah, it's because we loved talking about movies and we we would just have these lengthy text conversations <laughs> and, and this definitely is one of those movies that is like what we love to talk about yes yeah yeah first impressions for me well at the very beginning of this film we get all of the credits mm-hmm. and i found that a little bit discombobulating mm-hmm. i assumed it was intentional but there was a very small part of me that was like did something happen with the projector? <laughs> Are we seeing the end before the beginning? So it definitely grabbed my attention immediately because it was unusual. And then, yeah, we go into Lydia having this interview with the New Yorker and them just going through her entire career. And normally I wouldn't be a huge fan of that much exposition just laid out Mm-hmm. for the viewer but I really enjoyed it actually and I found it again just it immediately held me because I was so interested in learning about this person yeah I agree I feel like right off the bat we know that this film is giving us something different because the those reverse credits that was really weird I appreciated that they did that it felt more democratic I was like okay they're there's definitely some reason for this. Mm. But then you're right. It goes right into this very long, extensive exposition moment. And these are two things that don't typically happen, certainly not to launch a film at the, right. at the beginning. So I thought, okay, this is taking a very intentionally 
different approach to getting us in the space for this. But, but I was here for it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sinclair? Well, when there was first buzz about this film, I looked up Lydia Tarr <laughs> and I I actually felt a slight disappointment that she wasn't a real person. And this mm. is before I knew, obviously, what the movie was about. But I thought mm-hmm. this was going to be a biographical story of this female composer. And it was kind of the same disappointment that I had with Queen's Gambit when oh, I yeah. found out that wasn't based off of a, a real woman. There was something in me that wanted to see the story of a woman in this like masculine industry. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the same time, I did realize that this was more of a character study and more of a societal study. And I, I accepted that. I didn't really let that disappointment impact me at all when I started watching this film. But same with me when the the credits were at the beginning there is something inside of you that knows it's a choice but still right. feels like there's something wrong yeah. <laughs> with the projector and it's it's so interesting you can't help but feel that way um and the other thing too is you can't fully apply an analysis to this choice at the beginning you actually can't really until you see the end of the film and the credits at the end of the film where you can get a full vision of what this actually meant. But it does get you interested right away. And I felt really pulled into this right away because it was different. Yeah. I I watched this whole film assuming that it was a biopic. Oh, really? What? Really? Oh, yeah. I had no idea that it was... that. I just assumed that it was real. I didn't... I hadn't looked anything up about this movie in advance of seeing it either. So mm. I I just thought it was a biopic <laughs> until afterwards. Yeah, the whole time you thought it was a biopic. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Yeah. In fact, I literally was was throughout it thing, thinking to myself, how the fuck did I not hear about this? <laughs> about this woman. About this woman. I was like, <laughs> this is so crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, because she would be a very famous woman. Like even if yeah. you don't follow classic. I, I know, classic and I music, felt yeah. kind of ashamed <laughs> and, and uncultured to not know her. <laughs> oh man okay well i feel like there's gonna be a lot to discuss yes yeah. well we can start with storytelling as usual i saw this movie yesterday mm-hmm. and sinclair i know you said you're like give yourself a couple days and you were right because i'm yeah. still digesting this movie yeah yeah i saw it yesterday afternoon i had to work at night and i was like okay good i'll, I'll have the night to like let it sink in and so i came home from work last night to do my notes and i was like oh god it's still like revealing itself to me mm-hmm. so i might be having like revelations as we talk about it <laughs> yeah. love that yeah it's a big meal yeah <laughs> this film yeah it, it would be really hard to just watch it and just go right into a full discussion about mm-hmm. it because i don't think you come out of this really feeling like you know <laughs> mm. everything yeah i have to say that i think this is definitely one of the most interesting films of the year mm-hmm. and whether you hated this movie or you loved it, this will be the film that provides, I think, the most discussion this year. It's kind of the way I felt about Power of the Dog last oh, yeah. year, where there's just so much to discuss. And I think that that's really exciting. Same. And this movie also just feels like its own thing. It's not really like anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just in terms of storytelling, and we'll get into that, there is something just very intriguing and exciting about just the aspect of being able to discuss this film as a piece mm. of art. Art versus artist is a big thing. You mentioned that, Edison. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We could maybe start there. Yeah. So th- that's definitely one of the themes here. How can we separate an artist from their art? And I think that this is really interesting. I think that this film... It's not just presenting it as that. That's a question that we know so well and we've debated so much, but it's adding to the context of this a commentary about the way that we understand these artists and how we experience their work and how that changes over time, depending mm-hmm. on the lens of the moment. In order to separate that the art from the artist, you had that scene when Tyra was at a college giving a lecture and she's talking about Bach mm-hmm. and the student says that they live as a BIPOC non-binary person. They can't get on board with Bach, who's this old white hetero man who was no doubt problematic in his time. Mm -hmm. And Tara really challenges this student to the point of ridiculing them. 
she, the character, very firmly believes that an artist's work should speak for itself. Mm-hmm. And that the artist's identity, race, behavior, morals, etc., they're separate and shouldn't be factored into how we assess and interact with their work. But I don't necessarily think that the film is taking her side on this. I think that this film does a really good job of just giving us lots of meat to chew on and not mm. telling us how to feel about it. Yeah. And, you know, she ends that whole discussion by saying, you have to sublimate yourself and your identity. You must stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. (laughs) But in that moment has a certain meaning. But then later in the film, when we learn more about Tar, we understand her personal motivation. Mm -hmm. What's giving her, why she so firmly believes in that separation, because Mm -hmm. it it benefits her. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to her own presentation of herself yeah what did you think about that part of it for me the moments where she has commentary on that it was so clear to me that the movie wasn't taking that stance and I don't know if that's my own bias that I don't take that stance and so I was siding with the opposite of it but I was actually quite surprised afterwards to read a few reviews that assumed that this movie was defending that position Mm -hmm. Tara's position? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was like so clear that it wasn't, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is kind of its own meta conversation about art and artists. (laughs) That's what this film does. It's it's more holding up a mirror to you. How are you interpreting this? Yeah, that's such an interesting observation. Yeah, this movie is very ambiguous, and yeah. it. I also found that it doesn't take a side. Um, mm. Even though our main character is Lydia, mm-hmm. there is a, a coldness to her and a calculatedness to her that even though we're seeing things from her point of view, we are rem- still removed. Yeah, And I don't think this movie is th- sympathetic towards her. I don't think so either. At all, which... I think is really hard to do when you have a female character because we tend to want to put morals on women and and emotions on women. And we also like to side with them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. this puts us in a very odd position of not sympathizing with our protagonist, if you could call her that, right? right? I'm interested to know not knowing anything about her. Hmm. What did you think of her at first? Because I thought she was a villain right away. Okay. Like I, I I felt like there was something wrong with her yeah. right, right away. And the movie doesn't really show you that yet. But I immediately had a distance from her because hmm. she felt off to me. And there wasn't anything that was totally pushing that but it was a feeling that you get from her I think that the tone of this movie does help with that even looking at the poster for this movie Mm -hmm. it gives you like a dark feeling Mm -hmm. um, foreboding feeling I didn't necessarily get the impression that she was a villain but really what my feeling was was I couldn't I was so in awe of Kate Blanchett's performance (laughs) that was how I was feeling about her (laughs) I think you instinctively know, and we can get more into this about how she's sort of presenting herself, Mm -hmm. but you instinctively know that she has a very meticulous way. The dialogue and the text is so robust and Mm -hmm. so intellectual, and the way that she holds herself is so poised that you can't help but feel a little bit distant. And I think Mm -hmm. that that makes sense as to how she could come across sort of villainous. You can tell that there's secrets, that there's an Mm -hmm. inner life that she's not revealing. Mm -hmm. And that is what I related to at the beginning Mm -hmm. of this character. Mm -hmm. And there's also a a coldness to that conversation, like her biography and that interview that she's having with, with The New Yorker there is something that makes you feel like an outsider in in that conversation. It's intriguing, but you realize that you don't really know anything about that high art world necessarily. So you do still feel a bit removed from that world and a bit uncultured (laughs) as well, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. It kind of makes you take a back seat to her already. This conversation, the art versus artist is 
always timely, but I yeah. think it's really timely in regards to what's going on with Kanye West mm-hmm. right now. I mm-hmm. see so many parallels. And obviously, you know, that's a black rapper. This is a, a white woman in <laughs> classical music. Mm-hmm. But there's so many parallels between the two because right now we do have an artist and he's kind of described himself as like the Mozart and Beethoven of this generation which I Mm -hmm. think is interesting but we have an artist that's actually on the brink of being canceled for real this time guys for real yeah because he's pushed the limit Mm -hmm. so far but then has a relationship with with us putting out a good album and everyone's like, oh, right. that album's so good. But he just said all these fucked up things. Yeah. And it says something about us. When is it too much for us? When does the art not justify them anymore? Like, when do we draw the line as right. consumers? And I think that, 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 that this movie really questions that. We're involved with this as well. We're involved mm-hmm. with worship worshiping these artists and when is it too far like when do we finally cancel somebody well and i think that that's a really good point but i I think it's about your relationship with that person and your understanding of them too right with like for example somebody like michael jackson Mm -hmm. is really difficult to cancel because his music has proliferated so much of the global sort of pop culture yeah kanye west is somebody who doesn't necessarily have that artist relationship with everyone just like tara doesn't you have to be a fan of that of his style of music in order to be engaged with him in such a personal way like lydia Mm tara for example right so it might be a little easier to to cancel and in that i don't think people necessarily the public would be that bothered by Lydia Tyre being canceled. It might be controversial, but a lot of people won't have that type of relationship with her. But isn't that interesting how gray that makes this based on personal preference? Like what does that say about our relationship with cancel culture? Is it a preference thing or should we all have the same morals about it? I think that it's a preference thing. You're going to have, if it was one of your friends who did something that was inappropriate, you're going to have a different relationship, a response and reaction to that moment than if it was somebody who you didn't know and didn't have a vested concern for. Something that I have thought about recently is, okay, is my, if I'm still enjoying the art, is the artist profiting from that? And something that made me think about this is J.K. Rowling tweeted, Mm -hmm. someone had tweeted to her, uh, how do you feel that you've, you know, lost an entire audience because of things she said about the transgender community? And her response to that tweet was, I get my royalty checks and the pain goes away pretty quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I saw that tweet and I was so disgusted by it. And I just thought, OK, that's where I would draw the line is mm-hmm. I'm no longer going to spend money that goes towards this person and supports them and and that they can profit from mm-hmm. someone like Bach and the music of Bach. That music is in the public domain. So, you know, a conductor conducting his music Bach's ancestors aren't profiting from that so maybe that's where someone could draw the line I don't know (laughs) yeah I think that that's why this movie is so effective because it isn't telling us and Mm -hmm. it's kind of the power of ambiguity because Mm. our brains immediately start asking our own questions right when we're not given them you know and we're not given the answers our brains Mm. go into overdrive and start analyzing every choice we've made when it comes Mm -hmm. to an artist. Well, this is a film that is respecting its audience enough to allow and trust that they're going to be doing just that. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. This film is not providing answers. It's, it's providing the gift of offering the audience to analytically like Mm -hmm. think about this and reflect. I also think that specific to the cancel culture element of it, I think it's, even presenting her scenario with both sides, right? We have an understanding and we believe that, and because we see the way that she manipulates the people around her and the emails that she sent and whatever, we know that she's toxic and that what she's done, right? She needs to be accountable for her actions, but we also see the way that the media is manipulating, right? 
her the way they cut together the videos to present one certain thing. Yeah. And she's being fully canceled without necessarily proof of any of the sexual Mm -hmm. accusations that are there. But that's very much what Mm -hmm. happens in the world, right? That is how these things occur. We don't, very often, we don't have concrete evidential no, we're, proof. No, we live in a world of unreliable narrators. Mm-hmm. That's all the time. Whether it's social media or, or just, you know, the news or, you know, it's a character of, of Lydia Tarr. We mm. aren't given all the facts. So mm-hmm. it does put us in this position of trying to, like, search through everything to get an opinion <laughs> on something. And it becomes very difficult and very muddled. Something I really appreciated about this movie is that it doesn't show any of the alleged abuse. We don't get any of those scenes. And, you know, whether the choice is that it is supposed to reflect how most people interpret these types of situations and that we don't have proof. I also just loved that there there wasn't anything salacious in it. Like, Uh and it didn't feel exploitative. Like... I, I was happy to not have to see any of that mm-hmm. and to just analyze it from the perspective of deliberate things that we are shown. Yeah. Because and in the life, character of Lydia. In life, we just get a bunch of red flags. We don't right. see it the, yeah. you know, the majority of the time unless you walk in on it. But, or you're a, Or a victim <laughs> of it, right? Yeah, we just yeah. get these red flags. And this movie does touch on how these things are noticed but ignored yes. in these worlds mm-hmm. and how I, deep down we we know when something is off we do yeah. instinctively and we live in a world of red flags that a lot of the time most people pass by mm-hmm. or just just ignore well we accommodate people in positions of power yeah yeah particularly <laughs> people who are talented in mm-hmm. the arts the truth is really really great artists are like unicorns mm-hmm. they're contributing yeah. something that only they can contribute yeah. it is a sort of a one-off situation somebody like Lydia Tyre this character our understanding of her is that she's meant to be brilliant mm-hmm. and very few people are geniuses mm-hmm. in their field and so we make a lot of accommodations for them mm-hmm. because they're bringing something that only they can bring Well, let's actually get into the idea of genius and success and celebrity persona, because I think that this movie is really interesting because it it doesn't focus a lot on Lydia's musical genius. It focuses on her being a genius in our Mm -hmm. eyes, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And... I'm sure she's really great at what she does. And the movie doesn't make you think she can't do everything that she says she does or what everybody says she does. But there is an element of her that has created this idea of a genius. And we have bought into it. And there's a great scene, you know, near the end where we see her at her childhood home. Yeah. And it's very clear mm-hmm. she hasn't come from much. And she also mm-hmm. has, you know, tried to emulate these composers that she's worshipped herself and admired. Mm-hmm. And you get the sense that she is talented, but she's also talented at being a celebrity mm-hmm. and at being successful. And it takes a certain type of person to be able to get to that level. I think is talent enough or do you also have to be good at being famous is that an art form in itself it well it absolutely is an art form in Mm -hmm. itself and we see it manifest constantly with the people who are at the top of that game right the ones who know how to play the celebrity game are really brilliant at it I think that this film is showing her character. I think it's interesting because in the very, very first conversation, that very first interview, she is wholly uninterested in discussing gender. The fact that she's a woman and her place in the industry, right? But very clearly, she is crafting, like you say, this persona that is 
masculine that's meant to emulate these male conductors who have come before and composers who have come before because she feels that she needs to do that Mm -hmm. right she needs to present in this way it i found that so fascinating we spend this whole film seeing this meticulous woman who has her shirts tailor-made for her who lives in this stylish home in berlin who drives a luxury car who flips between speaking english and german and french from sentence to sentence we know her up until the point when she goes back to Staten Island and we meet her brother Mm -hmm. and we see her in this ramshackle house as this stoic, austere, refined, elegant, European-presenting woman. Right. And in that instant, we learn that she shed all of the traces of her former self to craft this persona. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And stars do it all the time. Marilyn Monroe did it. So many of the famous people do it, right? Mm -hmm. It's fascinating and I love the intention behind that. It's part of the genius. It is. This entire movie, she is rejecting the idea of being a woman. She doesn't align this... herself with any no. of the other female composers. That Even in the beginning of the film where she's talking with Elliot and says, why don't we make this fund open to both genders like I don't understand why it's still only open to women like as soon as I heard her say that I was like okay this is a particular type of person Mm -hmm. she's not interested in paving the way for women in a male-dominated industry she just wants to be the top and that means having to be a man right like she just wants to emulate that because I think that there's for her and maybe for others, there's like ego involved yeah. with somehow thriving against the odds and surviving and getting to the top of a male-dominated industry. Like, mm. she's managed to do that, so why can't anyone else? Well, mm. and I think specifically she wants the conversation to be, well, she did that because of her talent. She yeah, doesn't right. want identity politics to be playing a part of yeah. the the conversation around her success. It's all ego. We get everything we need to get about this character pretty much in that opening interview. Like Mm -hmm. she literally talking about her ego. She is describing herself essentially as God. Like she says, (sighs) you can't start without me. Sometimes my hand stops and time Mm -hmm. stops. Like she is this great conductor, literally breathing life into the music. (laughs) It's she's guiding the orchestra, but they don't exist without her touch and her yeah. control and i think that's fascinating yeah i, I want to talk about her god complex a little bit because when i walked out of this i was like oh this movie is about having a god complex and yeah. one thing that i always say is that when an artist reaches a certain point where they feel they're untouchable i feel mm. like they tackle two themes one controlling time and b <laughs> something about jesus or something biblical so directors Say, will do a movie about something biblical or Jesus uh, or, you know, I always <laughs> say, well, Christopher Nolan, he's obsessed with controlling time because I think he has a God complex. Mm. And Lydia Sinclair, Tarr, yeah. Sinclair, just say and two something about Jesus because you said one and then you said B. And B. <laughs> so say, just say two something about a God complex. Yeah. One and B. One and um, B. <laughs> You don't have a God complex. Yeah. God would not make that mistake. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And, you know, Lydia Tarr is obsessed with controlling time in this movie. Everything about her life is controlled. And Mm -hmm. I do love it when her life starts to unravel and we see this rogue metronome Mm -hmm. ticking and haunting her. And she can't find it. And she's hearing it. And it's that time slipping from her grasp. And mm. how this movie shows time, I thought was really interesting too, because it starts to like speed up really quickly, and us as audiences don't have control of this narrative in any way. We think mm-hmm. it's going one way, and then it will go very quickly to like you know her cancellation. Mm-hmm. It goes very quickly through the steps of this cancellation mm. and this unraveling, and it's like time is just moving out of everybody's control. I think her obsession with control, it it fills every single corner of this film. It's her relationship with her wife. It's the way that Mm -hmm. she interacts with her daughter's bully at school. Oh, I need to talk about that. It's, (laughs) it's, 
and, and we also see her biggest fear is losing control. And once her life starts to unravel, all of these tiny little th- elements, the noise coming from the fridge, the, mm-hmm. uh, the rogue metronome, as you yeah. say, the old lady neighbor. That's like yeah. the ghost the ghost of Christmas future. Her yeah, biggest yeah. fear is becoming that person who's lost control and is naked shitting on the floor being taken care of by, you know, Somebody by else, some other yeah. person or not taken care of or whatever. I just want to talk about the bully scene mm-hmm. really quickly because I love that scene <laughs> so much because I also just think it says something about me or about the audiences. Mm-hmm. There is something like satisfying about watching a bully bully another bully. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's this dark side of ourselves that, you know, even this one this woman is threatening a child. You should never do that at all. But there is something about watching strength in in a person and no fear. Mm. And in that moment, you're like, this woman has no fear. This woman feels untouchable that Mm -hmm. she could go up, threaten a child, say, no one's going to do anything about this. Don't say anything. No one will believe you. No one will believe. Mm -hmm. And it's this woman who just has no fear. And Mm. it's a really dark concept of bullying just trickling down but at Mm -hmm. the same time there's something fascinating about watching somebody just just live without fear and live without consequence like she just thinks she's untouchable Mm -hmm. at this point there's a lot of like abstract elements to this movie Mm -hmm. that I was hoping to touch on there's some abstract moments to this film yeah are you talking about some of the there's like some ominous things that happen Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I had sort of forgotten about those moments until after. There are clear moments in this film where we don't know who's doing what. Uh, the very beginning of this movie is like a mm-hmm. a live streaming of Lydia asleep on, I think, a plane. And someone is clearly somebody has bad intentions towards her and is chatting with somebody. There's a moment where we see someone editing her Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. We get another moment later with some sort of a live stream happening. Um, And I didn't realize this until looking up some other stuff last night, but I think it's at the very beginning of the movie. We are seeing somebody with red hair watch her speech. Yes. Mm -hmm. And... There was an actress cast as Krista, even though we don't really see her in the film, and she's a red-haired actress, and mm-hmm. I think it's meant to be Krista watching her, mm-hmm. which did give me the impression that maybe Krista is doing these things, or, or one partly of many. one of many, yeah. who knows. It gives you the impression that this has been going on for a long time, too, and that this right. is a story that it's uh, is about to break, but that there's right. different hands involved, and then different mm-hmm. people turning on her at different moments. Mm-hmm. as well well and the interaction the text exchange in that first time that she's being live streamed which i guess i assumed must have been by francesca because it's her assistant so it has right. to be somebody who's there on the plane with her yeah and it would only really be her assistant who knows you know the other one that it says like oh something something and she says you still love her then is one mm. of the other is one of the texts in that and then when we learn later that Francesca and Krista were also close and friends, mm-hmm. then I thought, okay, well, they're still messaging one another. And I thought that was really interesting because mm. it reveals that Tyra doesn't have, she's not as in control as she thinks she is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she's very removed from social media and that outside world. Like she is very much in a bubble and feels safe in that bubble that she's created. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole other world that she is underestimating Mm -hmm. there's some abstract imagery in this too and i think that you could kind of take this as a bit of a descent into madness Mm. slightly a little bit of um you know an eccentric downfall there's like very specific choices with sound in this movie and we're kind of hearing the world the way she's hearing the world and Mm. it it's kind of hypothesized, I guess, or known. I don't know that geniuses are very sensitive to sound mm. and their external environment. So she's always hearing things very dramatically, I guess. Right. I got the sense that it was kind of like a telltale heart situation. 
like Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart, where he like he has a guilty conscience and he just mm. he hears the sound of this this heart and he's like very sensitive to every single sound that's going on around him because he mm-hmm. is feeling guilty mm-hmm. and he's on the verge of being found out you know yeah and i think that totally makes sense because at the beginning of the film we don't necessarily see her being so perturbed by mm-hmm. the hum of the fridge or right. yeah. you know these these abstract sounds surrounding her it's only when th- the guilty conscience starts to creep in which it does show that she has whether right. it's necessarily that she's feeling guilty or, or she's, she's just, just afraid af- yeah fearful it's yeah. she's definitely it's impacting her what's happening yeah. well she also has the dream where the bed is set on fire mm-hmm. and that generally yeah. s- i love that moment. that symbolizes something's about to break like something's hanging mm-hmm. over your head and it's about to an event is about to take place okay so can we just quickly talk about the ending because this is the only part of the movie that didn't work for me oh interesting the the final sequence of this movie sees tire you know yeah reduced from conducting the mm-hmm. berlin philharmonic um probably the most the highest echelon of prestige to conducting this orchestra of young musicians maybe in vietnam somewhere in in asia and they're playing a score for a video game Mm -hmm. and then the last shot the camera pans to the audience watching this performance and it's all these young people in cosplay of Mm -hmm. the video game characters and it's to show how far she's fallen how how much her like meticulous craft of persona has crumbled but that didn't work for me Mm. and it didn't work for me because it it felt to me like the only part the only time that this film is giving us an answer instead of leaving us with a question i wanted mm-hmm. this to end with us wondering what happens to tar does yeah. she suffer yeah. the repercussions from this i wanted some ambiguity about where does her life go at this point does she just continue on does she get away scot free is she burdened by all of this um, does she, you know, go apologizing to everybody? Is she forced to actually reconcile with what has happened? But this film doesn't allow us that. It tells us what happens to her. And I didn't like that. I think it's all. I think it's asking, has she learned anything? Hmm. Because she's still treating that world like it's cut like it's the same world she was in before. In a lot of ways, like yeah. she's still living in her head at the end, like she's the most important person there. Right. Which I thought was interesting. She has no humility. And she's going to go in and move up the ranks in this. I think it, it asks the question, were there lessons learned for Lydia Tarr at all? But I agree. I think it could have ended completely ambiguous mm-hmm. like I, the ending didn't bother me but i i feel like you're right in the sense that there were other ways this could have ended that might have been stronger okay we've discussed the story the themes we could do it forever um but it's time to get into performances mm-hmm. kate the great yeah this is like uh, kate blanchett is my favorite actress mm. She is. She's mm-hmm. my favorite person working in film as an actor. Mm-hmm. And this performance, I think, is one of the best of her entire career. I, yeah. I This whole thing falls apart if there's one moment that's not believable in terms of yeah. performance because she has about four trillion words to remember. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and she's switching languages. Yeah. And it's a whole journey. She is the film, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's not a second that rings false or it's just uh, the most insane powerhouse of a performance yeah I think this might be my favorite performance of hers Mm -hmm. it's just so full bodied Mm -hmm. (laughs) like from the very beginning when she's waiting to go out and you see her she has her little tics and we didn't even get into that but do you think she has OCD do you think this character has slight OCD yeah probably. probably I got that impression but everything like it's in her eyes it's in the way that her eyes are twitching like it's her entire body is this person it's incredible yeah I think that she was so perfect for this because yes she's an amazing actress but also when her career started she had an aura of being like the next genius actress Mm -hmm. like when Kate Blanchett came out everyone was like this this person's like a, a creative genius. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. everyone was looking at her and it's mm-hmm. been that way through her entire career. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that you have this person that's seen as such a genius actress playing this musical genius that it just it works so well from that element. I agree. And it's the intellectual side of it, too. Like Kate Blanchett in interviews when she was on Inside the Actors Studio, like watching that very beginning, I was I was mm. recalling Kate Blanchett on Inside the Actors mm. Studio and the way that she was describing her own process as an actor. And there's a relationship there, right? Mm. Because she as a person always leans into the intellectual leans into the high art of what it is that she does mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right she can she can make fun of herself and she takes herself lightly but she, no she's a professional and mm-hmm. she's working at the absolute highest um level in the industry of this i i can't think of anybody else who could have played this role really well todd fields wrote this for her and said if she didn't want to do it he wouldn't have made this movie yeah. really yeah it was wow. met, it was sense. written for her and no one else was going to do it and because she does also have, she has a masculine quality to yeah. her. She has a quite a deep voice. And just watching her walk, watching the way that she wore the clothes that Lydia wears, it was a different person. Like, yeah. it was, it. it's just really, this is like a master class mm-hmm. in acting. And the way that she just fully gave herself over to the conducting moments, I believe that this was that person like Mm -hmm. she was it was yeah physically embodied she was Mm -hmm. like it was ecstatic Mm -hmm. when she was conducting you could see it in her face and her the tension and the way that she'd throw her arm yeah you really saw this person just in that moment fully kind of realized that is their moment i want to mention nina haas who plays sharon yeah her wife um this is a really important character and it's, you know, a character that doesn't get a ton of attention in the film. But when y- you do see Sharon, she's doing something really important in terms mm-hmm. of storytelling. Because she essentially is giving us a deeper look into Lydia that we aren't getting with mm-hmm. just the way she looks at her. And what's important about this is that we have two unreliable narrators we have like social media and then we have Lydia but the truth is coming from Sharon Mm. her looks and her scenes Mm -hmm. with Lydia tell us the truth Mm -hmm. right and Mm -hmm. it's in those authentic moments that are played really brilliantly Mm -hmm. that we actually get to be closer to who Lydia is yeah that's a really good point technical we'll do this quickly because we've been talking about this for ages Mm -hmm. but that Juilliard scene is a single take it's incredible Mm -hmm. wow really yes yes like that scene when when she's giving the lecture yeah and she eviscerates that (laughs) poor student it's a single take. The dialogue in that scene is so intense and technical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought to myself, okay, there, you know, people do this on stage and, and um, Kate Blanchett comes from stage. You can memorize that dialogue. You can deliver it and do it in one take because that's what you have to do as an actor. But to take into consideration the, the lighting camera, and the, the movement and that, you know, like the fact that they pulled off that scene in one take is honestly unbelievable to me i i was so impressed by that yeah and we should just shout out todd field because he hasn't done a movie in 16 years yeah so let's give a lot of credit to him for i mean kind of like pulling a tom ford where tom ford always Mm. comes just comes out every couple years and does a movie and it's just a banger um but todd field you know spent time doing tv and commercials and then does tar you know yeah and, like a brilliant um, film he's a, a really really great filmmaker um watch in the bedroom watch little children yeah in the bedroom is great he's he's wonderful children. so all right last word on tar <laughs> last word for me is this is probably my favorite film this year so far it's certainly the one that has engaged my mind the mm-hmm. most um i Am, was absolutely blown away by Kate Blanchett in this. I think this isn't going to be a film for everyone, mm-hmm. but I think for people who like watching films that make them think and make them ask those questions, they have to see it. It's a must see. Mm-hmm. Sinclair? 
Yeah, I just felt really excited with this one because it was just so meaty and there's so much opportunity mm-hmm. to talk about it. And, you know, whether you love it or hate it, that that is what makes good art, in my opinion, is yeah, the spark of discussion. And, yeah. And this is just so expertly crafted and refined yeah. and intellectual. And it, it was it, it was exciting for me to watch this and, and analyze it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love this movie. It probably is my favorite movie of the year so far. I know it is not going to be for everyone, but I love a character study of a flawed person. So, yeah. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this movie. This episode, we challenged ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme. And that theme is Don't You Know Who I Am? This is our week in entertainment. Who wants to go first? Helen? I'll go first. <laughs> Surprise, Helen. <laughs> All right. I chose to watch a movie that came out recently called The Invitation. Oh. It came out in August. There are actually quite a few movies that have this title. So yeah. this is the one that came out in 2022. So. Evie is a struggling artist in New York City who works catering jobs to pay the bills. One event she works is for a company called Find Yourself, which offers DNA tests to discover ancestry. Both of Evie's parents have passed and she's unfamiliar with her extended family, so she takes a test to find out who she is. Mm -hmm. The test reveals that Evie has a second cousin in England who happens to be visiting NYC and would like to meet her. The meeting goes swimmingly and Evie is invited to England to attend the wedding of some relatives. It turns out Evie's family run in very wealthy circles and she's escorted to an ornate gothic mansion run by Lord Walter DeVille, who it seems has his sights set on Evie. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's not related to him. It's a little bit confusing, but she's not related to this guy Mm -hmm. who's like wooing her. Written by Blair Butler and directed by Jessica M. Thompson, The Invitation stars Thomas Doherty as Walter and Natalie Emanuel as Evie. You'll recognize Natalie from Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. where she played Miss Andy Daenerys' confidant. Um, yeah. I wanted to watch a scary movie because this was the day before Halloween when I was watching this. I had seen it pop up a couple times as like, okay, a horror movie from this year. Um, are you guys okay if I spoil this for you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... <laughs> so she gets weird vibes from this house and the staff, but also Walter's like coming on really strong and she's into him. Um, she meets two of the bridesmaids for this wedding. One is super eager to meet her and very welcoming. The other is like very creepy and mean. What ends up happening is the wedding is actually for her and Walter. He's a vampire and the two <laughs> bridesmaids are his other two wives. Oh, um, Evie's great grandmother was his third wife, but she killed herself. And as it happens, Evie's the only female from her bloodline that Walter could marry. And he has to like have someone Something from this bloodline blood uh, uh, and, and needs to be his third wife. So that is why she was brought to this place, how this whole thing took place. Mm-hmm. Right. Less it's of an invitation, more of a... Demand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this movie's okay. I mean, there's some creepy, you know, elements to it. I didn't guess the vampire thing until it was revealed. So that was a kind of a cool reveal. But once that happens, it it's quite lackluster. Like, I would have loved to see more of the vampire side of this film. She pretty easily just kills them all and moves on (laughs) right it feels like a movie that was made very quickly but the best part is seeing uh natalie emmanuel in this role because i've only ever seen her in game of thrones and she's really good in this like she's she can carry a film um she's really beautiful she has good emotionality so i'm excited to see her do more stuff but this movie i mean wait for it to come out on a streaming service where you don't have to pay for it. It's not, it's definitely not worth paying for. <laughs> okay, fair. Yeah. Who would like to go next? Well, I will because I also chose um, a film that came out this year. So this is a Netflix original film, just came out a few a few months ago, and it's Do Revenge. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
directed by Jennifer Caton Robertson, who also wrote the script alongside Celeste Ballard. Uh, Do Revenge stars Camilla Mendez and Maya Hawk as two high school seniors who form an unlikely partnership in a scheme to enact revenge on the exes who did them dirty. Mm. So this movie is basically Mean Girls meets Jawbreaker meets <laughs> really every uh, yeah and every '90s teen movie um, set in this insanely rich private school in Miami. Have you both watched this movie? Mm-mm, I haven't, I haven't actually. No. Oh okay, uh, it's really good. Okay, cool. Really good. Camilla plays Drea. She's the queen bee of Rose Hill, their school, and she's dating the king of the school, Max, played by Austin Abrams. And Drea's life looks pretty perfect and everything is going her way until the sexy video that she sent Max gets leaked and everyone in the school sees it. So she's horrified by this. She instinctively knows that Max is the one who leaked it to everybody. She punches him in the face. <laughs> and, but she under, underestimated how much power he had. Mm-hmm. So basically she loses all her clout, her social status at school, mm. um, not to mention her friends. And because she's actually not a rich kid, She's attending the school on a scholarship. She's even more ostracized. Mm. Maya Hawk plays Eleanor. She is rich, but she's more like mousy and tomboyish girl who attends a different school. Um, but she's transferring to Rose Hill for her senior year. And she meets Drea at this tennis club um, that all these rich kids belong to, but that Drea has a, uh, taken a summer job working at. And Eleanor's girlfriend outed her to this to her school and told everyone that she was a predator and basically ruined her life. Ugh. So neither of them can really go after their exes themselves. Um, mm. But if they swap targets, they can do it. So they oh. hatch this plan to basically do revenge on the other one's ex. Because neither of you have seen it, I'm going to not go into uh, how this unfolds mm-hmm. because I okay. actually think it's worth a watch this is a fun fun movie Mm -hmm. yeah it has all of the elements of of a teen movie that you'd want there's a tour of the school highlighting the different social cliques (laughs) yeah there's really cleverly incorporated references and sort of tributes to other teen films like clueless 10 things i hate about you the craft scream cool intentions they're they're not called out it's actually done in a really unique way and there's you know the film is broken up by season of fi- of their senior year, fall, winter, spring. Mm. There's the big end of the year house party, etc. Sarah Michelle Gellar is in this playing mm. the school's headmistress. So we're bringing back, mm. you know, uh, an actress from a previous generation of teen films. I thought that there was a lot to enjoy in this movie. It was so fun. The performances are great. It's beautifully shot. The soundtrack is awesome. And yeah, I was so surprised mm-hmm. by how much I liked this. So highly recommend Do Revenge. It's on Netflix. Yeah, check it out. Cool. I do want to watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You'll like it, Helen, for sure. Yeah. All right, Sinclair, what did you pick? Okay. I watched Monty Python's Life of Brian. Oh, my God. Yes. From 1979. <laughs> Amazing. Um, <laughs> Little synopsis, born on the original Christmas in the stable next door to Jesus Christ, Brian of Nazareth spends his life being mistaken for a messiah. Uh, This is directed (laughs) by Terry Jones, stars Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Michael Palin, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, and Terry Jones. Uh, So, I mean, just for a little context, most people know who Monty Python is, but Monty Python were a British uh, surreal comedy troupe that had a sketch comedy show. And then they also made a bunch of movies as well. Uh, Holy Grail being one of the most famous Mm -hmm. ones. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the one I'm the most familiar with. And that brought them a lot of attention and success. And they made a bunch of other movies as well. I actually, I don't gravitate towards these movies, really. No? No, it's not something that I would necessarily put on or really go through all of them um not to say that it's it's not great um but it is a very specific style of british comedy um there's some slapstick stuff there's some visual absurdity and obviously you know terry gilliam is involved in this so that tracks uh, mm-hmm. but there's something like very niche about this comedy i find and i think like you either get it or you don't many my people might argue me on that but i don't think it's like universally loved comedy really i think it is actually yeah. quite niche 
I um, love it. I Life of Brian is so fucking funny. Yeah, like you either <laughs> <to me. laughs> you get it or you don't or it's yeah. just okay or whatever. But it, it but it yeah. is very of its own thing. Um, yeah. yeah. So I had seen Life of Brian. I haven't seen it before. And I've always kind of been curious about it mainly because there's a lot of um, controversy surrounding mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually banned in some countries just because – Anything that is Jesus, yeah, Jesus. Anything that is, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, satirizing religion is mm-hmm. considered b- blasphemy in yeah. certain countries. But I love to explore that, so I I wanted to check that out. But yeah, it's basically about a man named Brian, who's <laughs> just an ordinary man, and he's born in the stable next to Jesus. And mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film, the three wise men go to his stable thinking that he is Jesus, but really Jesus <laughs> is in the stable next door. So he's always kind of been living <laughs> his life as this regular Joe in the shadow of greatness. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Judea is being occupied by the Romans at this time, and there's a lot of upheaval. And Brian hates the Romans, even though we do find out that he is, in fact, half Roman, um, Mm -hmm. which he hates. But he joins this rebel group called the People's Front of Judea. Hijinks ensue. He's tasked with graffitiing the Roman governor's palace and also this, you know, crazy scheme of kidnapping his wife and obviously things go awry with these plans there's a really funny moment where for entertainment everybody's watching this gladiator match and there's you know it's after a match has happened there's bloody limbs all over and the title card just says children's matinee (laughs) which is like the matinee version for the old people and the children um I, re- I really love that moment. Basically, after the hijinks ensue, there's a, but you know, a part where Brian becomes a captive, and mm-hmm. in order to escape, he goes into a crowd of people and starts saying passages that he heard Jesus say, mm-hmm. and the crowd starts to worship him, and then mm-hmm. they start to run after him and continue to worship him and. He wants to get away with, uh, he wants to get away from them. He's saying, mm-hmm. you don't need to worship me. I'm not the Messiah. And they're saying, yes, you are. A Messiah would say they weren't the Messiah. And then he's uh-huh. like, okay, well, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, he's the Messiah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so whatever he says, they just parrot back to him yeah. what he's saying. And he's saying to them, you don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anyone. And they just can't get it through their heads that they don't need to worship somebody they don't need Mm. to follow what somebody is saying and this actually reminded me a lot of tar and i thought it was quite fitting because you know he ends up really just being a man that for a moment just kind of pretends to be something Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. if you say something with enough confidence people will buy into it and It's the same idea of just kind of crafting a celebrity or crafting a persona. And you just see this regular guy named Brian just kind of mimic something (laughs) and become this important person to people. And a lot of this movie is just people taking other people's word for it. Yeah. So I, I thought that this was quite funny. I will admit that a lot of the comedy goes over my head because I can't understand what anyone's saying. Like the, oh, really? in the English accent of it all, I swear. It just, some of it, I'm just like, <laughs> I missed that. I don't know what was just said at all. But this became a very cherished and beloved comedy. And, you know, despite the banning, and it almost didn't get made because the production company pulled out the funds right before. Oh, I didn't know that. They started filming, and um, George Harrison from the Beatles had to step in. Wow. Pay for it with cool. his production company because he was such a fan of Monty Python. So they had a, an actual so Beatle cool. step in being like, wow. you need to make this movie. Yeah. And George Harrison was like, I just want to see this movie. You need to make this yeah. movie because I want to see it. And they consider it to be like the most expensive movie ticket of all time. 
that somebody wow. pays for. Man, yeah. imagine having yeah. enough money and yeah. influence and connection to just do that. Yeah, Beatles. Right. Actually, I want this movie to be made. Let me just... Why don't you just make this movie? Yeah. Here's the money. Yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite part of Life of Brian is at the very end, crucifixion of freedom. Yeah. <laughs> crucifixion of freedom. And the one guy says, freedom? Oh, really? Nah, just kidding. Yeah, crucifixion. crucifixion. <laughs> well, there's a lot of... Um, some of the co- a lot of the comedy comes from them putting everyday annoyances into this setting. Yeah, you know, it's totally. like people are lining up to just get a rock for the stoning, but, you know... Yeah. And, you know, one cross a, per one, person. One pro- cross per person. So it's a very much, you know, something we can relate to just in an ancient setting, which is totally. But yeah, I think it's great. A funny, oh, interesting little gem of a movie for sure. <laughs> Life of Brian. Great companion piece to Tar. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly good companion piece to Tar. <laughs> a lot so of relatable funny. themes. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie to Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to become a Patreon member and get an exclusive episode every month, head on over to patreon.com slash talkmovietome. It's only $4 a month to become a monthly member. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. Thanks for listening. Ugh. <laughs>